Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm Joey Lovato, the producer and editor of Indie Matters. This week, reporters Michelle Rendells, Megan Messerly, and Riley Snyder sit down with me to talk about the end of the legislative session, the big surprises, and the bills you may have missed. We also have a special guest at the end of the episode, so stick around to hear from them. In pursuit of our mission to provide reader-supported, nonpartisan journalism, the Nevada Independent sometimes accepts sponsorships for the podcast and events. The sponsors have no input into topics or content. This episode of Indie Matters is sponsored by the Nevada Mining Association. All right, hey guys, how's it going? It's uh, two days after the ledge is over. Has everyone gotten some sleep? Gotten some sleep, but still feeling like death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like death yesterday, but today I got to take a comp day, and Michelle and Riley worked, so I feel, I think, much better. <laughs> so, the legislature is over, I think, as everyone is aware. <laughs> Wait, it is? Yes, I know. <laughs> so, can you guys, in one word, this is something that I'm stealing from James DeHaven, because they had their... their Pints and politics. Pints and politics discussion. So, if you want to listen to their, the RGJ, James DeHaven's from the RGJ, if you want to listen to their discussion... Um, I think it's posted like on their website. But I'm going to steal this question from him. Uh, if you could describe the session in one word or maybe one sentence, if one word is too hard, how would you describe it? I'm going to use the word that I used at Pints Politics, or I think this is the word I used, which is surprise. Other people have better, or had better words, I think. But um, I, I don't know. I think a lot of things were surprising this session, like issues we expected to come to the fore. Um, for instance, property taxes really didn't. I think it was also surprising the way, the direction we saw Democrats head in. You know, there were a lot of really ambitious policy proposals, um, and we saw a lot of those get scaled back. And I I don't know how surprising that actually is. You know, I think we had, you know, some sense that was going to happen, but I I think certainly things did not go this session necessarily the way that I would have anticipated back in February. I am going to use the word moderate because I think that the fears that this would be totally like a Democrat runaway session really did not come to pass. And what we saw, you know, the minimum wage is getting raised, but it's getting raised over the course of five years and it's only going to end up at 12 when the national movement is a fight for 15. And I think especially towards the end of the session, we saw a lot of things get really watered down to maintain a lot more of the status quo. So, you know, we have a new funding formula in the works, but the governor has just vast power to fund this thing however he wants. He's not bound by any requirements that the original bill would have would have bound him to. Um, with collective bargaining for state workers, it's like you can collectively bargain and yet it doesn't really mean a lot, the result of your, your bargaining. So I think the governor still maintains vast powers. And so while we are having some of these, you know, important first steps in certain policies, uh, it's really not just this runaway progressive uh, regime that went on during the session. Mm-hmm. Those are all good points. I think I would use the word uh, toaster. I mean, maybe the word I would use or the what I would say is 2015, because I think in a lot of ways... Um, I guess to, to rebut your point a little bit, Michelle, many of the things that were done this session were sort of rollbacks of what happened in 2015 when Republicans controlled the legislature and Brian Sandoval, a Republican, was in charge. So we saw reversals to several collective bargaining provisions that were put in place in 2015. You saw the removal of the uh, 
uh, retention aspects of read by three. So kids who can't read by grade three won't be held back. Um, that was very controversial in passing 2015 as well. Um, you had the extension of the, the modified business tax, which was supposed to go down. That was another thing passed in 2015. So in a lot of ways, I think this is sort of a mirror image of that session because that was all Republican control and we had all Democratic control for the first time in 20 years. So just maybe it's just my own self because I covered that was my first session. So that's what I'm comparing it to. But I think it, there was a lot of sort of like mirror images of what had happened then when Republicans last had to control construction defects on uh, those sort of lawsuits. It's another example of things they, they reverse. So that, that would be my, my, my word or toaster. Did you hear uh, any shuffling in the background? That's our dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Moby is here. He had a great time rolling around in Joey's yard after going to the groom. Yeah, we're at my house for the first time. Yes, very exciting, very exciting. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I think you make a good point about that. There were certain things where Democrats kind of put things in reverse. Um, another notable thing that happened at the very end was the uh, removal of the education savings accounts from the statute. And that's had just been sitting there unfunded. Uh, really, the program never got off the ground, but has always loomed large over the legislature. And they officially took it off the books through a bill they passed. So that that is definitely a reversal of 2015. Although I would say that, you know, maybe the things that you described were not the marquee issues of the 2015 session uh, that people are going to most remember, such as, you know, the, the tax that was kind of a, a bipartisan consensus. And there were a couple things in the 2015 session that were sort of um, meant to kind of poke a needle at, at some of the unions um, and just kind of flex a little bit of Republican power in the 2015 session. And those kinds of things are the ones that we're seeing reversed. So you brought up the point of education savings accounts, and that was one of the, the big moments that happened at the end of the session. So I was thinking it'd be worth for us to talk a little bit about what happened with um, that bill. Obviously, it was the long-promised uh, bill to nix a scheduled decrease of the state's payroll tax or modified business tax rate. And we saw a last-minute amendment get introduced and then get voted on, and it was very dramatic. I mean, maybe you can walk us through a little bit what happened when that amendment got dropped. Well... First of all, I want to say that in 2015, and Riley, correct me if I'm wrong, because you were there too, this MBT buy-down provision was not really prominent. I don't think people realized it was there. Would you agree with that? Well, I think they realized it because they, they passed the bill. But that wasn't the, the, the headline was they increased taxes by $1.1 billion. No one was paying attention to this small provision saying if X, Y, and Z happen, then this tax rate goes down. So basically, uh, the commerce tax was new and untested in 2015. What is we the commerce tax? The commerce tax is on large businesses, so businesses that make uh, $4 million or more in revenue each year. So basically, if the commerce tax, which was untested, we really didn't know how much revenue it was going to bring in. So if it overperformed, the idea was that there would be a trigger that would reduce the rate of the payroll tax, which is a separate tax, to kind of give businesses a bit of a break. Because and so the, that the state the, wouldn't have this just vast windfall. Mm -hmm. And the payroll tax was also increased in 2015 by a larger margin and brought in more tax revenue than the commerce tax. So that's the thing people often forget was that it kind of jumped up pretty significantly that session. So the way that Paul Anderson, he was the Republican Assembly leader at the time, describes it as uh, back in Kenny Gwynn's administration, they had passed a new tax and they had a big windfall and it was so big that they ended up writing checks to basically everybody in the state. So if you had a DMV transaction, I think is what the trigger was, you would get you know hundreds of dollars back 
in money. And it was just because they had this uh, you know, huge windfall from this tax. So as a way to avoid that, there was this provision that would lower the, the payroll tax rate um, to kind of give, give folks a break. Turns out that the commerce tax did overperform the threshold um, that basically the state had projected. And so it was scheduled to go back down in the summer. Governor Sisolak has proposed that the rates stay the same that it's been for almost four years now, and that that would raise $98 million uh, more than if you had let it go back down. And he was going to tie that to um, a variety of other spending measures. And I think it's worth noting, too, that this was something that he talked about in his State of the State address, and he said, we're not going to have new taxes, right? And this was a way for him to and the legislature to have increased revenue beyond, you know, what they would if they took no action, but without like creating a new tax or um, raising a tax above the level it is now. Um, the argument there was that we're going to just keep the rate the same and therefore that's not a tax increase. It's just sort of a maintenance of the existing tax. Though obvi- obviously we saw sort of that semantics game play out during the session. And obviously, uh, this has been a real area of contention because of this provision from the 90s that was passed by Governor Gibbons. And it is a provision that requires any tax increase to have a two-thirds majority vote. So the question is, is an extension of an existing rate when the rate was supposed to go down, is that under this law a tax increase or is that something else? And, and the difference in that is whether it requires two-thirds and, or whether it requires a simple majority. And Democrats, of course, have a simple majority in the Senate, but they do not have two-thirds. They are one vote shy of two-thirds. So, Riley, tell us a little bit about that opinion that came out. Yeah, so the first or second week of the session, uh, Democratic leaders um, requested an opinion from the Legislative Council Bureau, who are sort of the in-house attorneys for the legislature, saying, do we need a two-thirds opinion or not to extend this tax. And in like a 28-page opinion that was really boring to read, um, they basically said a two-thirds um, majority was not required to extend this tax. They said a variety of legal cases, examples in other states, and they said it's an extension. It's not the creation or generation of new revenue. Um, this obviously got a lot of Republicans very upset, both because, one, they probably didn't support the tax increase. They thought businesses deserved a break if taxes are doing better but also because this sort of opens the door to if other taxes are supposed to sunset or end, now they don't need, they don't have any leverage if they're in the minority. They just need a simple majority to increase it. So there was a lot of threats of lawsuits. I think like the day that this opinion came out, James Settlemeyer, who's the Republican Senate leader, said this is going to spark a constitutional crisis. We're going to end up in court and we'll see if that happens. But after that came out, Democrats introduced a bill on the assembly side that would have just extended the tax, had no other provisions in it. But they ended up going with Another bill from Senator Nicole Kinazaro, the head of the de- Democrats in the Senate. Yeah, Democrats in the Senate that allocated the money to some specific programs. Do you want to say what those are, Michelle? Yeah, so it was sort of a bit of a clever ploy because you tie the extension of this payroll tax to school safety funding that had been, you know, a couple of days earlier cut back. Um, it also tied it to the expansion of preschool programs and a couple other initiatives. So Basically, Republicans would have to vote against the school safety measures that they had championed in the, the days leading up to this you know, bill introduction if they were to oppose the extension of the payroll tax. So I think the word for that is poison pill. <laughs> um, and then later we saw that, that get modified. So then it got tied to pay raises. 
so Republicans have, you know, said, yeah, we probably think we do need to give the teachers the pay raises that Governor Sisolak has promised. Um, and they've also been really pushing for the opportunity scholarships, which is a private school scholarship that helps, you know, kids in low and middle income families to attend a private school. So it can be worth, you know, 8,000 plus a year towards private school tuition. Republicans have just really been pushing for um, continuing the funding for this program and Democrats have been really skeptical of this program. So um, basically Republicans to oppose the extension of the payroll tax would have to oppose the extension of the opportunity scholarship. So it was an attempt to really pressure them. Mm-hmm. And I think what's worth noting too is that that version of the bill that had you know money for school districts and had the money for opportunity scholarships, that the Democratic leaders also said they were going to put a two-thirds stamp on that bill, right? And this had been this had been the whole argument. Like Riley was saying, there was there were threats of a lawsuit, and a lot of Republicans had said you know, maybe if they had put a two-thirds stamp on it, maybe we would have voted for it. But just on principle of the matter, you know, they, they didn't want this opinion to stand that this vote could pass on a simple majority, even if a Republican did buy into the proposal. So this was, I think, I think it was Nicole Canizaro who framed it as an olive branch to Republicans, you know, saying, okay, we'll put this two-thirds uh, stamp on it, but I, I think one of the things that was interesting there is is it's basically just it was just like a formality to put it on there. You know, the the argument was well, legal lawyers have been putting these two thirds stamps on bills to advise us as lawmakers what support we need to pass these bills, but we don't actually need to listen to that. This is just sort of words on a paper, so we can put the words on a paper, but we can also just as easily take them off. And obviously, that's uh, what we saw play out uh, during the, the last moments of, of the legislature on the final day. Yeah. Can you guys talk a little, like, a little bit about the timing of all this? Because we're talking about like these big weighty subjects. This all happened like within a 24 hour period, right? So starting like um, Sunday night, like what, what happened from there on out that led to this bill getting passed? Yeah. So Michelle was actually monitoring Senate finance on Sunday night when uh, the amendment came out. We, we knew that there's probably something coming. We just didn't know what it was. And so this amendment dropped very late in the evening. And mind you, this is uh, the day on Sunday when the there was a lot of pressure, especially on senators, to get their business done because the Senate did not suspend their rules. So basically, all the bills had to be reported back from committee Sunday night so they could receive their final votes on Monday. So it was a very crunched time frame, very hectic uh, Sunday night when this big amendment dropped. And that's what Michelle was talking about with uh, the proposal to allocate extra money to the school districts, um, still having money for school safety, and then also this opportunity scholarship funding that was all rolled up into that amendment. And that's also when Senator Canazaro announced that they would be putting a two-thirds stamp on the bill. Yeah, so, um, you know, the previous version of this bill had just been, oh, you know, we can expand preschool, we can expand Zoom schools, we can expand school safety measures, but this bill hit a little more at the heart of K-12 education. And it said, you know, to accomplish these raises, we need to pass this bill. So it was even more uh, pressure on those Republicans. And of course, the addition of the opportunity scholarships into that bill, again, put these Republicans in a box. Like you have to um, either kill off basically this opportunity scholarships program that you love or, or, or vote for a tax extension that you have said you would not do. 
And it, it was really interesting. I was just going to say about the way things happened procedurally that night. We expected that uh, on Sunday night, this amendment to be adopted. I remember talking to some Republicans heading onto the floor saying, you know, this amendment just came out in Senate finance. Does this change anything for you on the MBT? Because, you know, throughout the day um, and, a, and a couple days over the weekend, uh, Senate Republicans have been talking about, you know, we have enough funding for Democratic priorities. You know, they, they showed numbers um, from fiscal showing that there was, you know, $120 million in unallocated funds in the budget. And so they said, you know, we have enough money to do all of this as is. And they had, you know, been pretty unified in their opposition to uh, this MBT extension. So headed into Senate floor, you know, I asked them, like, does this change anything? And uh, Senate Minority Leader James Settlemeyer said something like, oh, well, we'll see how it plays out on the floor. So I think there was this perception that they were going in to take this vote. But um, just the way that things happen in the legislature there, I think there was like 30 minutes or 15 minutes until midnight and they had to get through all of these bills before midnight. Otherwise, they would effectively die because of what I mentioned before, the bills having to come back from committees, they could be voted on the next day. Um, so they actually ended up delaying that till Monday morning. So that was sort of the, the big showdown on the final day was this, um, you know, big, big vote on this proposal that Democrats put out. You hit on what is the core of the Republicans' argument was that Democrats were not being forthright about what was going on with the budget. And we asked how much money had been left over from the budget cutting that the Democratic-controlled committees had been doing. And honestly, we didn't get really a lot of straight answers on that. So I think the Republicans' position was that, uh, you know, Democrats are not being upfront with us on how much money there really is, and yet they're asking us to raise this tax and saying we need $98 million from our votes to, to do this payroll tax. And Republicans said, our math shows there's, you know, $125 million and or more left over in the budget that could be used to all these priorities Democrats say need to be passed through this bill that, that involves extending the payroll tax. I think at the end of the session, the very last two hours, we realized that Democrats did kind of put the money towards uh, other things. For example, they put back pretty much all the school safety money that they had that they had taken out. They added a UNLV engineering building to the budget that was twenty million dollars. They added uh, like ten million dollars to Medicaid reimbursements. They had close to sixty million dollars that they had been sort of hiding away. And they added it back in the form of all these uh, these expenditures. I think one thing that's interesting to note, too, on that bill that came through was this last-minute uh, bill that was just to allocate money to Lou Ruvo, but it was amended at, you know, in the final like hour, hour and a half of the session to include all these additional appropriations. I thought it was interesting. Um, Republican Assembly Leader uh, Jim Wheeler voted against it because he had said, you know, I, I voted against the, the MBT proposal. So it would be, you know, unfair of me to say, okay, well, now I'm going to vote for all this spending, right? His argument was, you know, if you're going to vote against the tax, you should vote against the spending too. In the end, of course, we saw a dramatic floor debate. And then we saw this thing not get the two thirds mm -hmm. that, you know, they thought they would probably need to put this more and more solid legal ground. Mm -hmm. So it passed with a simple majority, which uh, opens the situation up to a lawsuit. The, the courts have not ruled yet on the meaning of that two thirds provision and whether this uh, modified business tax extension uh, will be struck down. Mm -hmm. So I think we have that waiting for us um, post-session. Yeah, yeah, we we all spoke, when I say we, the entire Northern Nevada press corps spoke with Governor Steve Sisolak yesterday. 
was yesterday, right? It was um, yesterday. Yeah. Yesterday, and we asked him if he was confident, and he said, you know, I've been in government a long time, 20 years. You know, if you can't trust your attorneys, then, you know, you, you can't go very far. And one, you're in a different branch than the LCB governor. Um, but <laughs> it'll be interesting to see what happens with there. A senator could bring the suit. A business could bring the suit. That tax was scheduled to go down at the start of the fiscal year, which is July 1st. So I'd expect somewhere around there they'll file a lawsuit and we'll we'll find out. You know, there's a lot of $98 million over the two years tied to that tax. So if that's struck down, that's a pretty substantial hole. So that's a fun pending tax hanging over the, the legislature and the state budget. But At the same time, um, Governor Sislak said, you know, teachers should be confident that the raises that they are going to get as a result of the passage of this bill are going to be there. And so I think... Um, I think legislative leaders and state leaders have kind of a plan B. And I think one of that those things is that we have a rainy day fund and we have kind of what's called the ending fund balance. So there's an amount of money that just is is there at the end of the fiscal year. So I think that they have prepared for the contingency that a court's going to strike this down. And, you know, $73 million in pay raises are, are tied to that. So moving on a little bit, we've seen the governor veto two bills already. And can you kind of tell me about what those are and what the impacts are going to be? Sure. So the governor issued a veto, as many people know, of the national popular vote bill that would have tied Nevada to an interstate compact, pledging our six electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote, which once enough states joined up to get to 270 electoral votes, which is the threshold needed to become president. So this is something a lot of Democratic lawmakers supported. A few opposed, a lot of Republicans opposed. The argument against it was that it would sort of diminish Nevada's status on the national stage. If the uh, only consideration is popular vote, then candidates will just go to Texas, California, New York, and not focus on smaller states like Nevada. Democrats obviously supported it after 2016, um, even after the year 2000 when Republicans won without a popular vote majority, but still won the Electoral College. Governor Sisolak decided to veto this bill for many of those uh, same reasons. He said he never wanted to put Nevada um, second behind national interests. So he didn't think he got a a substantial-ish amount of pushback from a lot of national Democratic types, but it remains to be seen what effect that will have statewide. Again, this is something that has not gone into effect, would not have gone into effect for the 2020 election, possibly by like 2024, because not enough states have joined. It's like at 180, 190 electoral votes when you count all the states who have joined. So really, had he signed it or not, it wouldn't have affected anything for the next election, but I think it was a pretty strong um, statement by the governor. It's kind of a Nevada first uh, statement. Mm-hmm. Prove how much you love Nevada. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other bill had to do with independent contractors and limousines. And I don't know. It's, it was pretty specific. <laughs> yeah. Um, the veto message isn't uploaded. They read it at about 11.55 on Monday night. I think in general, uh, you're seeing when you got two Democratic controlled houses and the Democrats in the governor's mansion, you're seeing more coordination so that you don't get the vetoes. I mean, last um, session, how many vetoes were there? 40 plus. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think in that sense, Democrats felt there wasn't anything to lose by passing something very progressive and sending it to the governor and making him the bad guy for vetoing the minimum wage or whatever the progressive priority here is. I think now you're seeing Democrats have to make their fellow Democrat look good. They don't have to, they don't want to make him look like the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a lot of the bills uh, that might have gotten vetoed were killed in the legislative process. Are there any bills? I know, Megan, you definitely have one. But are there any bills that you feel kind of flew under the radar this session but are probably going to have some sort of impact on people that maybe they won't realize? 
So there's this really interesting bill. <laughs> I'm going to preface it with saying that. Uh, to create a mid-level dental provider type, which I know does not sound like the most exciting thing, but anyone who knows anything about healthcare here in the state knows that it's not great and that we don't have enough providers. Um, in recent years, we've seen an expansion of mid-level medical practitioners. So, you know, your primary care doctor may be a physician assistant or maybe an advanced practice registered nurse. It may not be, you know, an MD or a DO. And Nevada's done a lot in recent years to expand those mid-level provider types in healthcare to give them increased ability and autonomy. Um, and it's actually, you know, helped meet some of the, the especially the primary care needs in the state. Um, and so there was this proposal this session uh, sponsored by Democratic State Senator Julia Ratty in coordination with the Dental Hygienist Association to create this mid-level uh, dental provider called dental therapists. And basically dental therapists could perform sort of a select number of procedures that, you know, regular dentists can perform. So, you know, filling cavities, applying sealant, sort of, you know, routine dental work in order to address sort of the oral health needs in the state. And advocates had said, you know, we're going to try to address underserved communities. So we want to serve the tribal communities. We want to serve rural communities. We want to serve low-income communities where there's just not this access to care or um, the providers are overburdened or uh, there are other barriers to access. The proposal was pushed back on quite significantly by dentists, as you might imagine, I mean, one, I think we sort of see this in, in any debate where you're you know, expanding, changing provider types. There's sort of these turf wars that go on. So I think that was part of it. But they also expressed concerns about, you know, the safety of the procedure. You know, they said some of these routine procedures can actually end up being some of the most complicated. You could drill into a tooth and not realize where the nerve is. Um, you know, just there are a lot of complications that could arise um, they also argued, you know, is there really a need for, for dentists? Are we, are we meeting the need? If there is a need, can we do more to incentivize dentists to come to the state? And so their arguments were, were on that side. But ultimately, this, this bill passed. Um, it was sort of limited at the end. So these providers are only going to be able to practice in underserved areas. So tribal health clinics, federally qualified health centers, um, mobile dental clinics, school-based settings, or any clinic that serves a majority of patients who are on Medicaid. So they really did want to sort of limit it. So it's it's targeting the population that, you know, proponents said has the most need. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens with this proposal. Obviously, Governor Sisolak still has to sign it. You know, he hasn't given an indication on, on how that's going to go, but it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. It's, it's going to be sort of a long-term proposal, though, because there's not currently, you know, an approved dental therapy program in, in the state. There's just not that many um, of these nationwide even yet. Not a lot of states have accredited these dental therapists, so it's going to take some time for it to get up and running, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how that sort of impacts oral health care in the state. Michelle, do you have any uh, under-the-radar bills? I don't know if I would say it's super under the radar, but I think the Read by Three program is going to make a big difference, at least for everyone who is in second grade right now and is about to move up to third grade. <laughs> it could potentially make a big difference in their lives. The existing rule, it was passed in 2015, was that if you do not read at grade level by third grade, you would automatically get retained. And there were some exceptions written into the law, but it was kind of a, a strong statement that here's a line in the sand, and if you are unable to read, we're not going to, quote, socially promote you just because you're kind of, you know, you're 10 years old and it's time to move on to fourth grade. Nevada lawmakers led by the late Tyrone Thompson uh, wanted to get that out of there. So that bill ended up 
passing. And so what's going to happen is Nevada is still keeping its commitment to the other things it did by Read by Three, which is um, when kids are falling behind, there's some supports that go into place. Uh, there's a lot more testing. And Joey and I actually went to a, a school and kind of took a video of this to see how it was working. But basically, um, kids are getting tested three times a year to see where they are in in their reading and what exactly within the broad category of reading are they struggling with? Like what specific part of that um, do they need work on? And if they need work on it, they're gonna get some, you know, an aide to come in and work with them in a small group or one-on-one. -on -one. Um, so that's all still there. The legislature is putting $63 million over the biennium to make sure there's people in every school that are working with these kids that are behind in reading and trying to get them up to third grade. But that so-called cliff that would have been third grade where you're just gonna have, there was potentially gonna be thousands of third graders that would be held back. I mean, you're, you're talking maybe like 10 kids per school. So I don't know what that would look like. Maybe 10 more kids in third grade, or maybe they start a new third grade classroom because of all these kids that got held back. Um, so you're not gonna see that. And, and I think principals are, are gonna be more likely to just let kids advance on to fourth grade, even if they're struggling um, with the idea that they're gonna continue getting some intensive help. But yeah, for every second grader out there that's listening to the podcast, um, <laughs> you know, that could be life-changing for you. How can they find the podcast if they can't remember? <laughs> um, there were a lot of really interesting election bills this session, but I think one that didn't get a ton of coverage that could be potentially big is a bill by Assembly Speaker Jason Frierson that requires um, the last address of a person incarcerated in a Nevada prison to be used for their reapportionment address when um, the the census happens and we redraw all the districts. So this is like a pretty simple tweak, but could have major implications for a lot of rural counties where like in White Pine County, a significant chunk of the population is prisoners. It's like around 3,000 people or 4,000 people in a county with a population of like maybe 10,000 or 12,000. So I believe this came up at the last census and there were some like court issues, but this is something that will kind of push more people, and you can argue that they technically should be pushed towards their last known address. There's some also uh, issues with implementation for people who don't like have the last known address, but that was one I thought that showed Democrats are really focused on redistricting when that comes up in the 2021 legislative session, and that's sort of going to determine the political uh, you know, direction of the state for the next decade, depending on how that goes. So that, that was one I thought that was interesting, but you know, didn't get perhaps the, the coverage it might have warranted. I swear you're going to bring up an energy bill, but... I thought about it, and I was like, <laughs> let's not make this podcast like an hour and a half long. Sure. Let's, uh... So, okay, kind of a last like rapid-fire question here. What is the bill you think is going to have the biggest impact? Um, we'll go in reverse order. I yes. think like really the minimum wage, and I'm going to cheat and say the paid sick leave or just the paid leave bill, those are really, you know substantial steps forward for this state after 20 years of having Republican governors to get both of those passed. I know they weren't to the level of what a lot of um, progressive advocates wanted. The group Time to Care Nevada that had been pushing for the paid sick leave bill, like even they had a lot of comments in opposition to the final version that came out, but ensuring that like a big chunk of the state's going to get 40 hours of paid time off a year, raising the minimum wage to, to $9 immediately and eventually to 12 those are big changes that are going to affect a lot of people. Um, so I think those are those are probably two of the biggest ones. One of the things that took a ton of work was this new K-12 education funding formula. 
And I think that even though it got watered down in the very final hours of the legislative session and the governor retains, you know, the power to make, sh you know, it, he's not bound to increase education funding by a certain amount each session, which would have been just really transformative potentially. But I think one of the things is that we're going to have a better view of how much we are actually spending on education. The funding formula that we have right now is so complicated that I have to go refer to a Jackie Valley story about this uh, <laughs> and explainer to try to like get myself in the mode of understanding how this funding formula works. It's basically this weird combination of how much is the local government putting in and then the state puts in less money if the local government puts in more and it's kind of this weird... Um, weird system seesaw yeah yeah she described it as a seesaw when one level goes up uh the local level goes down and vice versa so it's honestly a very confusing thing and then there's four correct answers uh to the question of how much money is nevada putting towards public <laughs> education um so it's just really confusing i think people don't quite understand um what's going on and then when you vote for a tax increase um, you kind of don't really see the fruit of that. So I think the new funding formula will at least uh, contribute significantly to our understanding of public education. And that in turn could lead to people being maybe more willing to um, put more money into the system because there's more predictability about where the money's going. I'm going to go with uh, the legislation to end surprise emergency room billing. So obviously this won't affect everyone, but for the people who do end up at an out-of-network hospital and an emergency, it is going to make a big deal. So, you know, for people who don't know right now and haven't been through this, essentially, you know, your insurance company doesn't necessarily contract with every hospital. So say you're in a car crash, you know, the ambulance isn't going to stop and find your insurance card and check to see, okay, you have you know, such and such insurer. So your insurer's contracted with this hospital. So we're going to take you there. I mean, they're, they're trying to save your life. So they're just going to transport you to the, the closest hospital that can treat your condition. So this legislation essentially takes the patient out of the middle of the surprise emergency room billing debate. So um, if you end up in that situation, your insurance company isn't contracted with the hospital, you know, no longer are you going to be stuck with these potentially tens of thousands of dollars in bills. Um, instead, what will happen is you will just be required to pay your insurance company's rate. So whatever copay, coinsurance, deductible that you're normally responsible for through your insurance company, um, you're only going to have to pay that amount. And then it, this bill sets out this process for how insurers and hospitals or insurers and doctors figure out the rest of the bill. But it's, it's going to be a huge deal for patients who, you know, unfortunately have, have maybe gone through something really traumatic, but then end up in the situation where they're facing, you know, very pricey medical bills. All right, cool. Well, before we get going, uh, we wanted to introduce you to one of three uh, new interns we have here at the Indie Turns. Indie Turns. Yes. Uh, so uh, Michelle is moving the mic away from me, so I have to lean over here. Um, so this is this is Taylor Avery. Hi, Taylor. How's it going? Good. How are you? <laughs> so we just wanted to know, you know, kind of what was your your impression of the you got you you got brought in on the last two weeks of the legislature. What would you think? You know, how did it go? <laughs> um, I think like going with a the theme of one word, I think the only word that comes to mind is overwhelming. There's so much going on at every time ever. Like there's a TV in the press room and you can like flip through the channels and it feels like at any one time, every channel has something going, not all the time, but like pretty much all the time, there's something going on on every channel. And I think, I don't know, I feel like I've learned so much just about Nevada and the way the government works in just the last two weeks and like how important it is 
when you are like voting for your legislators how important it is to know what they stand for and how they work with people and what's important to them because they bring that into how they vote and that in turn affects your everyday everyday life and I think a lot of people don't really think about that especially when they vote and that's super important are you uh, are you excited for the rest of the summer 2020? Yeah, I, I'm so excited for 2020, but especially for like the rest of the summer, I have like a few ideas of stuff that I want to work on. Um, and I'm excited because I feel like I've already learned so much in two weeks and uh, there's like 12 weeks left. So I'm so excited. Well, uh, listeners will have to keep their eye out for some more, uh, some more stories by you. And then also Trey and Callie are other, they're, uh, Kaylee. Kaylee, Kaylee. I'm sorry. Sorry, Kaylee. <laughs> I haven't met them yet. They're in Vegas. But yeah, so that we've got two in Vegas, and then you're up here, Taylor. So I think we're gonna get back to our barbecue, our yes. end of session barbecue. Enjoy some hot dogs and hamburgers, and relax <laughs> a little bit. Dip. Artichoke dip. Brisee. Michelle was Michelle was very excited about artichoke <laughs> dip. Thank you so much for listening. Um, now you're gonna hear me do the outro, and then uh, we're gonna go enjoy our summer. Talk to you guys later. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. I want to thank Riley, Michelle, Megan, and Taylor for being on the show this week and for working their butts off during the last couple weeks of the legislative session. If you want to listen to more episodes and support the show, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen. You should also rate and review us when you get there. Our 100th episode is in two weeks and we'll be recording it next week and we'll be answering all of your questions during that recording. So make sure to send them in uh, however you see fit through Twitter or on Facebook or you can email me at joey at the And last but not least, make sure to check out our website, thenevadaindependent.com, where you can read all of our post-legislature coverage and follow us as we move into 2020 coverage and more. Thank you for listening. I'm Joey Lovato, the multimedia editor here at The Indy, and we'll talk to you next week. Live review. Live review. Live review. It's pretty good. Yeah. Good. Good. Out of ten. Mm-hmm. Um, nine. Okay. All right. Well, you hear, heard it here, folks. First, folks. Nine out of ten are <laughs>